welcome to episode 59 of Radicals in Conversation, the monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. I'm your host, Chris Brown. It's great to be back with our first episode of 2023. In a context in which abolitionist discourse is reaching an ever wider audience and people's trust in the state as a vehicle through which we can hope to achieve meaningful political change continues to ebb away, we're seeing a renewed engagement with prefigurative politics across the left. Pluto's always published books from a variety of political tendencies, and that includes anarchism. The label anarchist has far from universal appeal, but as Scott Branson argues in their new book, Practical Anarchism, A Guide for Daily Life, the label itself is of secondary importance, and anarchism is actually something that many of us already practice in our daily lives, whether we realise it or not. From relationships to school, work, art, and even the way we organise our time, the book shows us that anarchism can help us find fulfilment, empathy, and liberation here in the everyday. So it's my pleasure to be joined on the show today by Scott for a conversation about their vision of a practical anarchism. We'll be talking about the ways in which it's informed by black and queer feminisms, how we can work to disidentify from the logic of capital and the state, and why we shouldn't throw out the idea of utopia altogether. Now, as ever, podcast listeners can get the book at a special 50% discount. You just have to use the coupon podcast at the checkout. And that discount will apply to some of our other recent books on anarchism as well, a full list of which can be found at plutobooks.com forward slash podcast reading. So without further ado, here is Scott Branson on Radicals in Conversation. All right. So, Scott, welcome to the show. It's really great to have you here today to talk about the ideas in your new book, Practical Anarchism, A Guide for Daily Life. Um, the book was published by Pluto just a few months ago. I think it was October 2022. And uh, I mean, yours is really the most recent in a series of you know excellent books about anarchism or sort of touching on anarchism that Pluto's published in the last year or so. Um, it sits alongside Disaster Anarchy by Rhiannon Firth, Islam and Anarchism by Mohammed Abdu, and Anarchism and the Black Revolution by Lorenzo Combar Irvin. Listeners of this show may recall the episode that came out with Lorenzo, Jonina Irvin, and William C. Anderson. Uh, so that's well worth a listen uh, in the archive. I think all of these books together sort of speak collectively to the sort of ongoing relevance of anarchist approaches to political questions, you know, in 2023. And a more, I guess, expansive vision of like what anarchism entails than is perhaps commonly understood by that term, you know, or what's encapsulated by anarchism. So, yeah, maybe before we dive into our conversation today, you could just start by introducing yourself to our listeners and maybe give us that little bit of context in terms of your own life and how you came to, you know, anarchism and these kinds of questions. Sure. Um, thank you for having me on the podcast. And, you know, it was really great to get to contribute my book alongside, like you said, this kind of newer um, selection of texts, although, you know, Lorenzo Camboa Irvin's is a reprint, so it's classic. Um, but uh, yeah, I am, uh, I mean, like I make my employment through teaching. I'm also a writer and an artist, a musician, and an organizer who I do a bunch of different kinds of things uh, in terms of community organizing. I first like sort of got into anarchism through one of the typical subcultural ways, which was punk. Mm. 
it seduced me, you know, like, actually, it's a weird story, because like, as a Jewish person, I was, I was in London as a child, uh, and I saw at the like, Madame Tussauds rock wax museum or something, I don't know, it was like Piccadilly Circus, Yeah, Johnny Rotten and Sid Vicious like wax figures, and they had swastikas on them, and I was like, that is so bad, and then I was like, I, I must know about this, and then like in the tube, they had these huge ads for like some big punk compilation that was being put out. And then I, so I bought Nevermind the Bollocks. And then like, I don't know, I started reading about all this stuff because I was like, a, I'm a total nerd. But I, I got involved in like kind of DIY punk stuff and then read a book that AK Press put out called The Philosophy of Punk, which was basically about anarchism. And so mm. that kind of like sold me on anarchism early on. Although I, I won't say that my trajectory has been completely consistent because as someone who like lived in New York during 9-11, I had a, a pretty nihilistic phase. And I also found myself in grad school for a while trying to like figure out ways to just basically not work. Um, mm. But really being put through the university system reinvigorated my anarchism because for two reasons. One was like, I thought I was finding a place where there was like a bunch of people who are like wanting to collaborate and contribute um, together. And actually it was a place of competition and elitism, which is maybe my own foolishness for believing some kind of myth about it. (laughs) And then trying to find any kind of employment in that position, especially after the 2008 crash was like next to impossible. And yet all the time you see these like academic writers who are touting some kind of like radical or Marxist sort of critique and have no connection to what's going on, you know? And so I was like, you know, there's like Occupy was happening. My students were there and like I was nearby being able to like access that. I mean, I'll say my students were allegedly there. (laughs) Um, Realizing the sort of the politics of this like path that I had chosen, which was a little bit of a way to kind of avoid having to kind of buy into things, reinvigorated my anarchism. And then I moved to a place where I was able to kind of put all my different interests together, which involved also like being queer and trans and punk and anarchism and found community and really like kind of dug back into it. So it was like a resurgence in my life. Mm. Oh, that's that's really interesting. I mean, I think the books. Firstly, congratulations. It's uh, you know I finished reading it what yesterday, I suppose, and um, <laughs> in preparation of this you know show, and uh, you know my own route to sort of radical politics also kind of came via anarchism uh, in my university days. So you know my route through was, you know, reading people like Colin Ward and Kropotkin and Emma Goldman and. Yeah. So it's been a pleasure to revisit a lot of these ideas in what is a very refreshing and sort of stimulating package. And I think it feels very timely. And maybe we'll get into some of the connections with abolitionism and maybe why it feels particularly relevant. But I guess to take it back, you know, the very first sentence of the book is the main argument of this book is that anarchism is a name for something most of us already do. The name itself matters Mm. less than the doing. I thought this was a really refreshing way to start the book. It feels like both an invitation for us to, you know, identify with anarchy in action, um, but simultaneously it's kind of a rejection of the importance of the label or, or of a identitarian approach to anarchism. Is that a valid interpretation? Yeah, totally. I mean, like you mentioned all these great anarchist writers and there's clearly something to be learned from them. And what I say essentially in that sentence that you quoted isn't entirely different than something like Colin Ward says or Kropotkin says, right? The way that I approach anarchism 
I'm influenced by David Graeber and the way that he distinguishes anarchism from Marxism in fragments of an anarchist anthropology where he kind of points to the academic and theoretical attachments of Marxism that you can see just in the way that they get attached to particular names. And he puts anarchism as a kind of ethic of organizing. So it's, not, it's less a theory and interpretation of the world, but a way of doing things. That's sort of the goal of, of the book is to think about anarchism less from this academic perspective of like having to know the correct like ways of getting into it because a real anarchism doesn't believe that there's a correct way. Mm. Um, getting outside of these kind of leftist ideas of like bowing to authority who could predict or know things. Like we learn from people in the different contexts, historical contexts and the different situations and confrontations that they had, but we also are facing ever new and changing conditions. The way that I wanted to kind of approach it was to basically infuse it with feminist and queer understandings of the way that we run our everyday lives sort of in and outside the structures of the state. And whether that's called anarchism or not isn't important in so far as like we build these worlds, <laughs> no matter what we, we call them. The word itself creates a kind of situation of contestation, one that you see in the media, one that you see with politicians, and then obviously it becomes a problem with the state. And I also am clearly invoking the term for my own strategical purposes. Like, I use it even while I dismiss it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that, you know, the hope for liberation and changing the world can't be tied to any kind of piety with whatever kind of term it is. It has to be open to kind of failures and experimentation. And, and for me, anarchism encapsulates that. Everything that we use to get us there, we, we are going to have to let go of in some way. Mm, yeah, I mean, that comes through throughout the book, this sort of sense of letting go, uh, you know, accepting and embracing the idea of like dissolution and failure and contingency. Definitely a common thread that runs throughout the various chapters. I mean, you note, uh, I think early on in the book, that anarchism's come back into the limelight in recent years as a way of organizing and a sort of motivating force or ethos, you know, behind movements across the world. Why do you think that's mm -hmm. been the case? And, and could you point to some of these movements in particular? I don't know if it's the reason I wrote the book, but one of the reasons why I think uh, taking an anarchist approach to things is important in terms of understanding what's going on right now and what has been going on for the last 10 to 15 years, which I think gets very misunderstood by the kind of academic Marxists, the champagne socialists, um, <laughs> you know, the, the people who are really attached to party in the state. So... I don't know when we can start the date, but, you know, we had like the Battle of Seattle in 1999 and then a kind of lull post 9-11. Obviously, people were doing really important things, but starting probably around the movement of the squares, you know, entire square in Egypt and then the Occupy movement uh, going through to Ferguson and the different black insurrections in the U.S. Uh, I obviously have a U.S. centric kind of perspective, just given my own limitations. Up through, you know, in our world, there was the response to Trump being elected and the rise of fascism, which saw a lot of street movements. And and I mean, these are all things that are happening globally. Like I can point to other things like Rojava, obviously. And there's been uprisings in Chile and uh, there have been different popular uprisings like in India more recently, like all over the world. There's these things springing off. And I take this sort of the way that I think about this as an anarchist thing is... Um, for a couple of different reasons. One is that 
some of these things look like spontaneity and, and you know, typical kind of like a, a version of Marxists hate spontaneity because they want to plan for the revolution, right? And these things look like they just kind of come out of nowhere. But the actual fact is that in the in-between moments, and this is something I'm very interested in as part of anarchism is the between moments, like mm-hmm. not just the like insurrection and revolutionary moments, yeah. but like what's happening in between. A lot of preparatory work is done, and that work is done typically by people who are anarchists or people who are involved in different kinds of like care networks and mutual aid that they may not call um, anarchism. And that's what makes possible these very spectacular uprisings. It's linked between the movement work that people are doing that is visible or brings things to confrontation, but it's also this kind of often invisibilized, often feminized work that allows for these things to happen. The other thing I think that we've seen in this kind of decade and a half is a replication of tactics so that like people have learned from one to the other that like horizontal organizing, affinity group organizing, these kinds of anarchist methods are effective and work very well. Oh, diversity of tactics, which was something that sort of got, you know, named actually a little bit pre this time in the late 2000s. Um, just as a, as a way of thinking, like kind of like respecting that different people have different approaches to things. Um, so if you look, you know, closely at all these different movements, there's anarchist influence at least going on, mm. and anarchist possibilities that are are bringing them to the fore. Uh, you know, just to put this a little historically, also in some of the other work I, I do, I've um, I've translated uh, the French gay liberation theorist uh, Guy Ockingham, and he was like really affected by the May 68 uprising and trying to figure out how to how to deal with it, basically, especially in the way that it led to the beginning of the gay liberation movement. And some of the images he has of it is this kind of untimely way that these insurrections kind of pop up and they create those possible worlds in that moment. And so rather than the getting stuck in thinking that each moment is a redo of the one before or, you know, it has to be a kind of linear progression. I think we can take all of these moments together to say these are like, this is anarchism that we are building and think about how we can relate or trying to transfer or transform the energy and experience that we find on the streets in the moments of a kind of connection, in the moments of confrontation with the state and in the moments of like feeling like some kind of liberation is possible or like on the verge of happening and, and bring that into our daily lives. Mm, yeah, absolutely. You know, you do kind of talk about the maybe, you know, that masculinist trope of like street fighting, uh, you know, those kind of direct confrontations with the state. But the flip side of that and very much the thread that I think runs through the book is this idea of a reorientation towards care and centering care in our everyday lives and our relationships to others. And also, as you mentioned, the kind of rejection of the sort of linear idea of progress and towards, you know, revolution in that sense, but also in terms of like time and productivity and these thinking more about that you describe it less as like a building towards like a great wave but more a kind of reservoir of experience that we can draw on so yeah there's there's quite a few things there to touch on i suppose one of the things that yeah did resonate with me having you know hosted this show and kind of had lots of conversations with other authors of ours there is this moment of like abolitionism and a much greater sort of sense that Appealing to the state is ultimately illusory, you know, right, as a place in which to kind of pin our hopes and and so on. And I think this book resonates in, in the same way that a lot of this kind of abolitionist literature and sort of ideas and praxis does. 
Yeah, and they both, I think, are situated in the here and now, right? The the daily endeavor of creating the world we want, that sort of prefigurative idea, rather than referring to some, you know, far off political destination in the future that we hope to reach. So I thought that was quite an interesting connection. It's quite obvious in hindsight between abolitionism and anarchism. Could you maybe speak a little bit about some of the resonances that you think are there, if any? Yeah, for sure. And yes, I do. I agree. And I, I try to bring that out in the book in, in a number of different ways. And this is, again, one of the uh, strands of like learning that I've done from black feminists and queer organizing and writing over the last few decades of abolitionist thinking, also in terms of like community accountability and transformative justice, bring those into the conversations of anarchism. A lot of the people who are involved in that might call themselves anarchists too, but not everyone. But what you said, I think, is really important in terms of like abolitionist prefiguration, because, right, one of the things that certain abolitionists would say is that we need to create the world in which prisons aren't necessary, right? right? It's not that we just can imagine tearing down the walls of the prison and then we, our problem is solved. And actually, if you think about abolition, and I think this is like a, a sticking point for a lot of people who are, who are newly uh, arrived to the ideas of abolition after the George Floyd rebellion, like abolition really does entail the end of the state because if you take away police and prisons, um, there's no way that the state can function, right? The state mm-hmm. needs the police's enforcers. I don't know if it needs prisons because states have functioned without prisons the way that they are today at least. But um, yeah, so we, we need to create the world that we want to live in. Um, another way of thinking that is like if we had some kind of punctual revolution right now where like the state toppled and people had control of the means of production and could organize their lives... Like, I would say, and I'm not alone in saying this, that we're not ready. We're not ready for it because mm-hmm. we've integrated so deeply state log- what I call state logics into our thinking, particularly in terms of the way that we nat- naturalize or biologize hierarchies like race and gender, sexuality, and even just like kind of the way that economic hierarchies get written onto the body. I think one of the most pernicious ones really is like a certain form of masculinity and the way that 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 um, creates violence around it. So like abolitionist thinking to me is a way of kind of thinking about this two pronged approach of like tearing things down, ending institutions that we do not want while doing the work to create diffuse alternatives. Right. Because it's not replacing one thing with the other, but thinking about like what material needs do we have to create a world where the sole answer to a uh, conflict is incapacitation or punishment. I have some like differences with some of these thinkings because like sometimes uh, abolitionist thinking is aiming for a world without violence because they name violence as like the tool of the state and that we do not want to use that. And while I am suspicious of a kind of desire for revolution through violent means that because that would be like wishing mass murder or genocide and I don't I don't want that and I've said this to other people that like if we ever get to this kind of like if like what's necessary for a a state revolution to happen is the military to be on board with the revolution like I'd rather the military in the police put down their guns than like take our side and kill a bunch of people you know (laughs) but that said I'm not anti-violence and I think that part of abolition for me and transformative justice has to include ways of like community self-defense or taking the power into our own hands when we are faced with certain kinds of threats. Like this is how I think about Nazis, for example, Mm. or, um, you know, I've done a lot of survivor 
support of sexual and uh, intimate partner violence. And while I would love to imagine that everyone is capable of transformation, in the current world that we live in, there's not a lot of incentive or, or structure for people to do that. And, and, and so people can just move on and continue hurting people. And sometimes I think like, yeah, I don't know. We, I just don't think that we can hope for a world of nonviolence at all. There's a, a beautiful part in The Dispossessed by Ursula Le Guin, which I, I cite from her book a lot, where this it's like this stupid in, interaction between the main character, Shevik, and a, another guy working at a like mining site, I think, who has a name similar to his, like Shedek or something like that. And they keep getting confused. And the other guy says, change your name to Shevik. And he's like, no. And then they like just get into a fist fight. And everyone's there, and they're just kind of like, okay, well, you know, this is their problem. They've chosen their means of solving it, right? And uh, it's not like a completely unfair fight where someone's going to get, like, murdered. It was just, like, a punching it out for a little bit. And uh, in the end, I think, like, Shevik thinks, like, oh, I received the gift that he gave me, which was this kind of violence, and it, it showed him something. You know? I just think that we have to have room to think about violence and not try to imagine that we could ever escape it completely while also doing the work to disentangle institutional systematic types of violence, which for me show up the most in terms of the state and the police, but also in terms of like families and uh, cis heterosexual versions of masculinity. Mm, Yeah, definitely. I mean, again, a a refrain throughout the book's chapters is this idea of disidentification, yeah, which (laughs) is this rejection of internalized hierarchies, um, so could you say a bit more about, yeah, disidentification, what we're reorientating away from and, and towards? Yeah, I tried to use different kinds of words, but that word has also been used by the queer theorist uh, Jose Esteban Munoz. He theorizes it as a tactic of queer women of color, or I guess people of color. I don't know why I'm feminizing all of them. But anyway, uh, as a way of like relating to the power structures that isn't just an either or. Uh, in a way, I read it as like, critique of what you get stuck in if you're just like really Foucauldian which is to say like Foucault kind of has this idea that power has already anticipated all of its resistance right like that there's this kind of binary operation in which the resistance is dictated by the power structure itself and which that means there's no way out and there's no real like possibility of community resistance. Joy James a black feminist scholar critiques him on that because it it basically overlooks histories of actual like resistance and confrontation that have happened. So disidentification is a way to get outside of that kind of binary where it's like, you know, we can't just like unplug, right? We don't just like leave capitalism in the state for many reasons. One is that like the state has borders that they enforce. Uh, The other is that unless we have like a lot of wealth, we need food to live and shelter, uh, you know, and many of us uh, don't have the skills to, like, live simply off the land. And we've seen the history of, like, land projects failing. They're also, like, often apolitical and don't do solidarity, right? So, like, we can't just unplug. And we also know that we can't, like, reform through the system in a way that's going to meaningfully change things. So disidentification is a way of kind of, like, trying to work in between those two binary options. It's also similar in a way to the way Fred Moten, Stefano Harney, and the Undercommons try to think about like using and stealing from the university. So it's like playing with the power structures while opposing them without imagining some kind of pure outside 
and not identifying fully with with the inside. Yeah, it's kind of for me a way of acknowledging the way that power works internally within us and and not like kind of damning ourselves for that replication because we've been made to replicate that, but to be able to stand back aside from it and use a kind of way of analysis to think how can I be doing the things in my life in a way that promotes like mutual respect and autonomy that promotes care and doesn't engage in competition and hierarchy over a false sense of scarcity. Mm. So, I mean, the book is is called Practical Anarchism and there's the chapters deal with different elements of everyday life or, or kind of areas in which people might question, well, how could an anarchist sort of practice or way of doing things and having relationships relate to so like you know you talk about education you talk about relationships romantic relationships and other forms of relationship you talk about labor and work and time itself so yeah I think it's it's really interesting the way that it's structured and I think one thing that came through that I thought was quite interesting in that chapter on relationships is how anarchism seeks to dissolve the the eternal and totalizing claims of capitalism in the state and and the ideas of stasis and permanence that we sort of hold up on a pedestal and in terms of like how we relate to one another like could you talk a bit more about your anarchy at home chapter because i found this yeah idea of the rejection of permanence and knowing that things will end and, and accepting and embracing that quite interesting yeah, in some of the talks I've been giving, I kind of call it my breakup theory of anarchism. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, okay, so there's a few different ways into this. One is that I think anarchism as an organizing method teaches us this through things like consensus-based uh, organizing or affinity groups. Consensus is a form of making decisions where, as opposed to like a democratic election or whatever, it's not a majority that takes makes the decision, but everyone has to kind of work their way there. But I'm sort of taking from the other angle where, from particular experiences I've had, where if like you have a situation and someone keeps blocking, let's say, what everyone else in the group wants to do. Now, a block can lead to really good productive discussion about what are we really doing and, and lead the group to like some self-analysis. But sometimes it's used as a way to wield power. And I find it as a kind of uh, tool to be like, if I'm constantly objecting to what's happening in my surround, then maybe I'm in the wrong space, right? And then there's other people I can find to do things with, which brings me to the affinity group which, as an organizing structure. This is an anarchist idea going back to the 19th century, you know, rather than something like a party or hierarchical cadres, the affinity group is like a group of people that come together either around a shared idea or a shared aim or action. And there isn't an expectation that the group is going to outlive the action or whatever that, that they're doing. So in anarchism, like I'm trying to bring out this idea that we can imagine creating institutions that will dissolve. Theoretically, you know, the kind of liberal state was is supposed to be able to be changed, right? This is like in the social contract theory that like with tyranny takes over that there would be a way to change. But once the state gets power, it doesn't allow for that to happen. But anarchists have to look at the ways that power tries to do that to inhere and, and maintain control and practice, I think, um, dissolution because as you sort of mentioned, we are surrounded by all these ideas that the best things, the most valuable things, or like the morally important things are the things that last the longest or forever, right? We have the eternity of heaven and and God. We have the eternity of marriage, even just to the idea of like, which is not really reality for anyone anymore, but the idea that you like have a career for life, right? There's all these things that like you make a choice for life and, and live it through. And that flies in the face of like most people's actual experiences. 
So I try to bring it down to the kind of like basic level of a relationship. In the beginning of a relationship, especially if you're like falling in love, you feel like this desire for forever because that moment of is, is spectacular. It's also exceptional and it isn't something that can actually last, right? It's not something that can become progressive and linear. It has to change over time. And what a lot of people find in their relationships is that you go through this like initial moment of like seduction and falling in love to, you know, if you get past that, forming an attempt at daily life together and finding out really whether you're compatible or not. And for a lot of reasons, people often realize that they aren't. And you have to give up on the promise and that idea that you started with in order to release yourselves from that. That could work in different ways, right? Like I, I jokingly say... The breakup theory, like, um, I'm always a proponent of breaking up, although, you know, as someone who's had my own breakups, um, it's not like an easy place to be, right? It's a, it's painful and it involves grief. Um, and sometimes it's not what you want and you can have a, these ideas of failure. But there's also this way of knowing that, like, the ending of things actually tends to be good uh, in some way, despite, like, the mourning that is involved. Also... One way that I think about this, and I, I think this is an anarchistic way of thinking, or, or maybe it's just my own magical thinking, but like the kind of idea of prefiguration, right? So we like are living in this world of shit, this world that is organized against us, uh, that's here to destroy us, right? That as Audre Lorde said, no, we were not meant to survive. And yet many of us keep fighting for a better world and we do all that we can to prefigure that world right now. So we have to imagine the end of the world and demand the end of the world while building another world. And to me, like the ability to build the other world has to do with the ability to imagine the end of this world, even if it's not happening right now. And I think that's also a tool in terms of our relationships, right? Like I've tried to use this in my own interpersonal relationships to be like, I know that I'm okay, right? If I'm in a committed, say, coupling, right? Or even just a friendship. I know that I'm okay on my own. I know that I'm okay. Um, and that knowledge can help me in- engage in the interactions and the conflicts that I have within the, in those relationships so that I don't feel like everything is on the line constantly, right? And that like my every you know mistake is a moral estimation of my, my soul, soul or something, right? So you, if you know that every relationship can and should end at some point, like you can maybe engage in conflict in a more productive way that gets you somewhere rather than continuing to cycle in the ways that we like act our traumas out on each other. Mm, yeah, definitely. And again, you kind of have that duality of conflict and care. And, you know, again, another interesting thing that comes up in the book throughout is the idea that we have sort of abdicated responsibility for dealing with conflict or confrontation we say well no there's a state the state will sort of be the arbiter of any issue that there might be so we've kind of let atrophy the actual ability to relate to one another even if that is to have a confrontation of some kind this kind of appeal to authority i suppose that's another thing that needs to be um, disidentified from right yeah so we have to practice conflict and healthy conflict which is hard when we're like surrounded by violence and sort of like filled up with trauma and a lot of people find themselves stuck in this thing. Um, but yeah, so practicing healthy conflict without that call to authorities to intervene. And I've seen this play out within anarchist spaces where people like want 
whoever is the organizer of a space to solve whatever problem like arises within it and and, and in some of the spaces I've, I've organized I've been like well the, like we don't see ourselves as sort of policing the space but a place of enabling a kind of confrontation that could be productive you know while getting each other's backs you know not letting anyone be the victim of an unfair fight or something like that, but like to to work out the conflicts. Also, the idea that you're not going to get along with everybody and you don't have to. Even some of the people that you can organize best with are not going to be your best friends. Um, so yeah, we, we don't need to abdicate our sort of ability to navigate these conflicts to external or, you know, hierarchical institutions. And, and I think practicing that within our lives, with our friends, you know, facing the conflict donna haraway is staying with the trouble in terms of like a ways of thinking about things like that that can be productive and it also that makes us less scared of like messing up of failing of being wrong i want my anarchism to tell us that we we're gonna be wrong right because if we knew it already we'd be there um and if we also also if we knew it already we wouldn't have had had this whole deviation through the horrors of capitalism and the state right so, uh, yeah, we're going to be wrong. We've got to take risks. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, again, on the theme of unlearning the need to appeal to external authority, and I guess it relates back to the state again, and just thinking about the kind of the chapter on work and some of the questions that often get sort of leveled mm-hmm. is that, you know, there's these questions around like infrastructure and how stuff will actually just get done, you know, that people are fundamentally lazy and that there needs to be some some sort of enforcement mechanism to ensure that work gets done that needs to get done so i mean that's moving you know the conversation in a slightly different direction but i was just wondering if you could say a little bit about how you deal with these kinds of questions in the book yeah i mean i think that it's an ideology that's put on us that forcing people to work is the only way to get things done that is the ideology of capitalism which uses the wage basically as a way to remove people from their subsistence and then force them into working and then create this idea that like productivity in itself is like moral worth, right? And there's various analyses of this that I don't really need to go into, but it's an ideology that was put on us and it wasn't the way that people have always lived. It's still not the way everyone lives. And we have a culture right now where everyone talks about burnout and it's real, right? Like, and people starting to think about rest as a revolutionary activity because so many of us have internalized this individualized productivity as a measure of our worth. Meanwhile, most of the work that we're doing is reproducing a world that harms us and isn't doing the things that reproduce a world that would actually help us, right? So there has to be a refusal of work involved in our anarchism because a lot of the work we do is, is bad, right? I mean, I really like the way Ruth Wilson Gilmore, the abolitionist uh, thinker, talks about us being on guard duty. And this is going back to your thing about like at our workplaces, like, you know, it's great to organize a union. It's great to go on strike. But also while you're at work, like, don't snitch on people, right? Or like, (laughs) find ways to take from work, find ways to steal your time, steal the resources that work might give you access to. And I also speak of like, not romanticizing the idea of like working a shitty job is the only way to be a good anarchist, because like, that works you to the bone and you have no energy and you have no access to resources that you can, um, you know, displace into other better things. So all that, yes. And then on the other hand, like, I think it has also been proven that people uh, happily work to produce a world that they want to live in. And the work that's necessary for that isn't the same 
kind of work or amount of work that is demanded from us under capitalism to barely scrape by. So if we were living in worlds of like subsistence, we'd have different rhythms and different energies. I don't like to subscribe or like get nostalgic for like a prelapsarian past of like when it was this way and and feel that we could ever like return there to some pre-capitalist organizing, but rather to think about how we could use whatever tools we have now to create situations of of less work so that we can do more, do more nothing, <laughs> and also just do more of the things that we want to do, right? I mean, Oscar Wilde talks about it in, in Soul of Man Under Socialism, and he, he has this kind of like fully automated luxury communist kind of idea in that <laughs> a certain kind of mechanization will allow everyone to kind of like live their lives like a work of art, which would fundamentally change the idea of art itself because it would no longer be the realm of specialized people who have the resources or have been like, you know, endowed in some way, but that like we could then find the creativity in every aspect of our life, which then would sort of, you know, everyone in this entrepreneurial world today like wants to find some way to be a creator or an artist because it seems like it's better than being a worker. So we want to uh, rearrange our lives where we're, we're refusing to do work and the, the stuff that we do in our life is something that like creates and creates connections and creates new experiences and feelings. I use the word care a lot, but I would like want to give that up too because I think that notion is so so enmeshed in gendered politics and has already been captured by the neoliberal state as ways of like trying to co-op mutual aid and force on ourselves the like uh, minimal reproduction of our lives to serve capital so like yeah all these things we could give up to like kind of reorganize the world and doing the things that we need to do to survive from a framework that isn't one of drudgery Mm. yeah absolutely and also in the chapter on work i thought it was quite interesting how you kind of addressed things like you know the question of you know say scientific research or like technological innovation um on the other side because i think there's an assumption that just because medicines or technologies have been developed under capitalism that that's the only way they could possibly be developed and i think you even say that you know the ideal of scientific discovery is sort of anarchistic it's this sort of there is an element of decentralization there people experimenting and testing things out and I found that chapter very interesting because it contradicts the assumption that everything we have that's good has been created because of capitalism or it's a necessary condition for the creation of technology or medicine or whatever. Right. It's a tautological argument because like we live in this world, but like probably the conditions that allowed for it had something outside of capitalism. And I this is important to me as someone who is chronically ill and like I rely on the pharmaceutical system for my own survival and a lot of like anarchists when you want to sit and envision like a world without a state just will give up these things where like chronically ill and disabled people will just be like dead you know um but i think that there are other ways to organize it i mean we we do have to deal with the way that resources have been extracted from particular places when we get to ideas of technology etc but i don't think that we would live in a world where there'd be no innovation or like anti-technological and even like the sort of like primitivist quote-unquote idea uh, is a myth because humans have been creating different forms of technology for forever it's just we only have this one kind of view of what it means now based on like digital technology you know Mm. I mean there's so much in the book that we could talk about the section about money was really interesting and I was kind of aware when I was reading it that my own sort of reaction was quite sort of uneasy towards some of what you're kind of suggesting like you call for a I, I hope I'm not sort of misrepresenting your words here, but I think you call for a sort of rejection of our 
constant orientation towards the future, right, when it comes to our money. So the impulse to always be sort of hoarding wealth, saving for a rainy day, you know, for our eventual retirement, these things that may actually never come towards a sort of reappraisal of what our needs are in the here and now. And, and you know, you note that that can include, you know, luxuries, but with a view to kind of redistributing wealth when we have it to others in our communities. Um, so that might be a simplification of what you're sort of aiming at in that chapter. But I found it quite interesting because it's sort of, again, it feels like a very embedded impulse to be saving and thinking about the future and all of that kind of stuff and quite hard to break out of psychologically. So yeah, could you say a bit more about the ideas in this chapter? Yeah, I, I mean, it's really hard to contend with, right? Because what I'm trying to argue is that on the one hand, one of the ways that capitalism captures us into its like reproductive cycle is this idea that we... No, we're going to constantly need to be making more money in order to survive or that we could like climb the social class ladder through saving money up to the point of moving up into a new bracket or new caste. All, this is all the while that it's like most of us are barely surviving and, ha- and having to spend the money. So there's this kind of morality of saving while we're also like breaking the bank to survive. On the other hand, Plenty of us are faced with these like crises that are unpredictable and have no funds with which to deal with them, right? Like what it could be so minor. It could be like if you rely on a car for work and something happens to your car, it could be something with your health that we can never predict, whether it's an accident or some kind of illness. And then, you know, you don't have the money to, to deal with it and no one's there to really help you. So there's that like real feeling of need to have some kind of protective or safety net for ourselves because the state has for for like the 50 or so years that they like gave us a safety net, they've like they've taken it away, <laughs> I guess, 70 years, something like that. So if you look at like in particular, I see like trans black trans in particular communities trying to do this kind of organizing that instead of like the death oriented necropolitics of being like, look at how the state murders black trans women. Right. And like, that's where we need to put our politics is like, look at these black trans women living and help them pay their rent and help them get like groceries and, you know, help them find jobs and like whatever. It's a way of like redistributing in the, in the now when you have access to funds to other people, sometimes that gets framed through ideas of like reparation or generational wealth or whatever. I think I'm more interested in just thinking about how, first of all, to take away the moralism of needing help because everyone needs help. And second, to like think about your access to things as a uh, spreadable, right? Rather than something that you need to hoard. Again, it's hard to do this. It's very hard to do this. Um, and this is a one huge place of disidentification that I think we need to work on most in terms of our internal morality, like whether it's someone on the street asking you for money or like you see someone on, you know, a GoFundMe who's asking for like rent or whatever. And you're like, well, I'm barely making my rent or like I've seen this before in the, what gets called the negative solidarity where like you're on welfare and like you start judging like whether other people are deserving of welfare. Right. Um, <laughs> but the world that I want is the world where everyone has what they want and need, not just what they need, but what they want to. And that's why I said luxuries, like splurging on things is a pleasure. 
So, yeah, like reorienting ourselves to the way that we think about money and how we can employ it in our lives as breaking down those boundaries between ourselves and others of the ideas of property. You know, maybe you can save up money and, and buy a house. What can you do with that house then, with that resource? Is there a way that you can use that that isn't just like walling yourself up against others? I think this is also particularly important with like climate collapse coming and the, and the tendency for people to like be these kind of individualized preppers or whatever, right? But to think about, because, you know, this is why I say like that day may never come. You may never retire. Whatever retirement you get from your job or pension, you know, may disappear at any moment if it's in the stock market because like it's all made up anyway. So yeah, thinking about the resources we have now to share and, and create possibilities that help us produce new forms of life. Yeah, absolutely. I thought that was a really good summary of the chapter. It was great. I mean, we could talk a little bit about the idea of like a gift economy as an alternative way of thinking about economics and how it presupposes a different kind of relationship to a, you know, a capitalist economy sort of based on commodities and so on. Yeah, I mean, I'm not the first person to like bring that into anarchist discussion. You know, the anthropologist Marcel Mauss talks about it in, in his essay on the gift. And then lots of anarchists have written about it. Graeber writes about it in that anthropology book. It comes from Mouse's sort of whatever anthropological ethnographic research of different indigenous groups. And he, he was disproving the idea, the sort of mythology that capitalism developed naturally out of barter and exchange and said that actually other societies had different ways of exchanging things. And one of them was through gifts. And the gift, there's been a lot of theorizing on this, but one way to think about the gift is that the gift isn't money, right? It's not like uh, that kind of universal alienating form that Marx analyzes where you have one thing that stands in for everything else and has no connection to the maker or even the consumer. A gift is like something that you give. I mean, the way that the French philosopher Derrida is about it was like you give something with like no expectation of return. That's like the pure gift. But that's not really true because the gift creates social relations, right? Where you give something to someone you may not have an expectation of a return in, in kind, but it creates this circulation in which other gifts will be given, right? And this is something that we do in our lives, even just in what is called gift giving, like at the holiday times. But like, you know, you make a meal for someone. Someone puts you up at their house when you're traveling. You, I don't know, check in on someone's cat or take their dog for a walk or watch their kid for a day or two or like whatever, babysit. You know, all these different things we do when they're not compensated financially. These are gifts and they create a social economy. Someone else who I really like who's written about this from a disability point of view is Lea Lakshmi Peepsna Samarasina. And they have this essay on a fair trade economy of emotional labor where like if we're just explicit about the ways that we give our time and and also uh, allow to have boundaries this is something i actually wanted to say going back to relationships is like mm. allow yourself to be cared for by people but also let people off the hook for caring for you that's a gift in itself too giving people the gift of like relaxation there's a lot i could say about this i've also spent time reading uh george bataille the like french philosopher and he he takes the gift into a different place because like I mean, for him, he looks at potlatch, which was a, a ritual done by Northwest Coast indigenous groups in which uh, wealth was determined through destruction of objects at special ritual moments. And, and so connected to this gift economy, I think, is this idea of like the luxury of destruction, 
Uh, for him in capitalism, there is a kind of ritual destruction of the poor by the wealthy. Um, and that is sort of how our world is operated. But uh, I think we could like imagine gifts along those lines too of like giving up on ideas of self-sufficiency, giving up on ideas that like um, our economy could like sustain itself as sustainability as something that was like produces no waste and think about the sort of wasteful ways that we can interact in the world. Uh, and I don't mean this to counteract like sort of, you know, ideas of sustainability in the environment and like how we can create like a world. That, but just that like, like waste, like in, in giving yourself the time to stare idly out the window, you know what I mean? Like a cat in a sunbeam just sitting there mm. beautifully lazing. The luxury of like wastefulness and destruction and, and not imagining self-sufficiency, I think is another way of taking this. Yeah, I really like that reframing of luxury. And again, that sort of turn away from thinking that the only way to spend time is to spend it productively, you know, in, in that kind of understanding. I suppose I wanted to ask a bit about the idea of utopia, which I guess normally we think of as like a vision of a future society, uh, which kind of seems at odds with, you know, what you're advocating for throughout the book. But you don't reject utopian thinking altogether. And you sort of talk about utopia understood as you know no place and this kind of fits in with a lot of what you're talking in terms of ideas of practical anarchism so could you say a bit more about how you sort of understand the value of utopia and sort of thinking of it as no place yeah i'm interested in utopia so i'm not like ready to outright reject it like some people are i don't think that it's like a neutral term because like i've written this one essay about how like the prison is a utopia for the state, you know what I mean? Or or just like, you know, the United States was formed as a utopia, and that utopia was built on genocide. And so many utopian images, uh, visions have genocide as part of them. Um, or, you know, in their attempt to create seemingly self-sufficient societies are bracketing out the harm done to others. So even like in the utopian novel, um, the ambiguous utopian novel, The Dispossessed that I quoted earlier, the anarchist, society is actually a mining colony for the capitalist world, yeah. right? Um, so, like, we can't imagine these things in isolation. And I'm working with uh, a couple comrades on a piece on utopian politics and settler anarchists in the way that, like, anarchists replay kind of utopian ideas that are connected to settler colonial structures. So I think there's a lot to critique there. And yet, uh, there's something in it that I think is helpful. So one, one thing for me is... So much of the kind of art and media that we consume either reproduces the world as it is, which is called realism, right? Um, or creates dystopian worlds like of like that are worse. But they're actually sort of just like what we're already living in, uh, yet acknowledging it. And I think that there's something important to be done by people who make, who create things, to use that energy to, to imagine worlds otherwise so that we can practice thinking that first of all, this hellhole isn't inevitable, right? That there are other alternatives and to, and to just like imagine other ways of relating. I'm so inspired by novels that fit within utopian genres. The other thing that I think with no place that I'm trying to get at, so no place is the like etymology of utopia. I mean, utopia in itself contains two different words. There's like the good place, the EU-topia, and then the utopia is no place, which is a joke that like there is no perfect world. Wilde said utopia is the one place where you like you set your sights, but as soon as you land there, you have to go again, right? Because there's no there's no landing at utopia. 
um, unless we had a totally dead world. And that's why so many utopian novels are actually a little disappointing, like going to Moore's utopia. Anarchism shows us that there's no arrival, right? There's always what Le Guin calls a, a constant vigilance to protect against the ways that power kind of pulls up and inheres. So I want to call it no place to think about also relationships to property and land to displace our understanding of like that we need the right land to do the right state project or something like that, which is settler thinking, and to draw our attention to these moments of time where we aren't ruled by state thinking as, like you said, reservoirs of life, right? That we are actually living these lives already in many ways not to deny all the violences that we're subjected to, some of us more than others, constantly in this world, but that we have these moments, in-between moments, of joy and brilliance and care. And, and these are sort of like the no place of utopia that I'm interested in because like that experience of living, of knowing how to live, right? Because I think also capitalism tries to make us think that we don't know how to live. Of knowing how to live is what keeps us going, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's pretty much a great place to stop. I'll ask one last question. Um, I mean, you've just talked about Ursula Le Guin's The Dispossessed, which is a fantastic book, as is Marge Piercy's Women on the Edge of Time, which comes up throughout the text as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, for listeners who haven't read those, I mean, I definitely would recommend them. You have a suggested reading section at the end of the book. So I just wondered if there's anything that you'd like to sort of pull out of that that has informed your own work in particular that you are particularly sort of excited to recommend to others. You know, in terms of like what I was just saying, um, Sadia Hartman's uh, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments looks at turn of the 20th century black queer women who touch base with the archives in various ways through often like criminalization. And she imagines the kind of ungovernable riotous lives that they were living that can be recorded by official history. And in that is like trying to recover a kind of counter history of what she calls a kind of anarchism, you know, that that isn't an anarchism that the European philosophers of anarchy could have acknowledged as such, but as a testament of like an ongoing history of rebellion and resistance, right, within black culture. So I'm super inspired by that book. It's very beautiful, too. and And it crosses the line generically between like history and imagination. All of Sidia Hartman's work is really wonderful. The Kambahi Rikver collective statement is very short and I draw on it like all the time as a way of thinking about like how we need to do coalition work. They're a black feminist lesbian collective. Also the like writing of June Jordan has been really important to me. I quote her throughout the book just like, you know, she says the only connection between us can't be the enemy, right? We need something else that brings us together. And and she also brings up one of the main anarchist problems, which is that once we get rid of the monster, everyone might want to run in in different directions and we have to deal with that, right? We can't, uh, this is another problem with utopian thinking. We can't imagine that like we like free the world and everyone is on the same page, right? We have to allow for all that difference. So that's a lot of like black feminist thinking. And then one of my favorite texts ever is The Scum Manifesto by Valerie Solanas, which is just like totally out there, violent, hilarious, feminist, nihilist, utopian end of the world text um that's really problematic and troubling but i still i still love and i could name more like novels and stuff those were all not in the kind of fictive genre but maybe that's enough (laughs) yeah 
All right, Scott, thank you so much for your time. It's been a really, really interesting conversation and I do urge people to check out the book. It's available now from plutobooks.com and uh, other good bookshops as well. Yeah, thank you, Chris, for having me. I'm so happy to be here. And uh, if you read the book and want to reach out, you can get me through my website, sjbranson.com and send an email to me. I'm happy to hear what you're thinking. That was Scott Branson on Radicals and Conversation. Practical Anarchism, A Guide for Daily Life is out now. As ever, podcast listeners can get 50% off. Just use the coupon podcast at the checkout on plutobooks.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the show if you haven't already, or leave us a review wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with our first in-house episode of the year, so stay tuned for that. Until then, thanks very much for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye.